When a child is diagnosed with a serious, life-threatening illness, the entire family is affected. These stories from those families, especially when faced with challenging decisions, will move and inspire you. The parents are courageous and resilient in their determination to keep their family strong. Courageous Parents Network promotes their insights so that others may also find hope and strength. Welcome to the Courageous Parents Network podcast series. In this podcast, CPN's Blythe Lord talks with mom and writer Faith Wilcox about her experience parenting her two teenage daughters, Elizabeth and Olivia, following Elizabeth's diagnosis with a severe type of pediatric cancer, osteosarcoma. Elizabeth died at age 14. Faith also shares how she and Olivia grieved together and separately in the years that followed. Faith has written a memoir about her experience called Hope is a Bright Star, a mother's memoir of love, loss, and learning to live again. I am here with Faith Wilcox, mother of two daughters, who we've talked to before and did our Writing as Healing series with. But in this instance, we're here to talk and really hear more about Faith's daughter, Elizabeth, and just have a conversation and see what comes out as Faith remembers Elizabeth and talks to us about her journey and what she learned with Elizabeth and Elizabeth taught others and perhaps can help us today as we learn about this girl. Faith, I just learned from you that your daughter Elizabeth and my daughter Cameron both died in 2001. So we've been at this remembering and legacy building and meaning making and coping and missing for the same period of time, which I think is kind of neat. Well, let's just start at the beginning. If you can introduce yourself again, your two daughters, their names, their ages, and then really begin the story of who Elizabeth was beyond her diagnosis and then what happened. My name is Faith and I am the mother of two daughters. Olivia, who is now in her mid-30s, and Elizabeth, who would be in her early 30s, but she died when she was only 14. Elizabeth was a very active child, a very good athlete. She's the one in the classroom who made everybody laugh. She's the one at home who had the silly antics. She really had a way of lighting up a room with a very beautiful smile and just a a light way about her. She made people feel very comfortable when they were in her presence. She had some dear friends and they used to really have a terrific time together. When Elizabeth was 13, she started to have a sore knee and I took her to the doctor one time for her annual physical and he felt that this was primarily due to growing pains because she had grown from five foot six to five foot nine in a year. And at that time, I thought that was a reasonable explanation because many girls her age on the soccer team were also having sore knees. And so I thought, well, that's very possible. But about six weeks to eight weeks later, her knee was hurting her more and more. And so I went to see an orthopedic doctor and he took an x-ray of her and said he'd give us the results in a couple of days. 
But instead of my orthopedic doctor calling us, my pediatrician called us and said there was a shadow around her knee. She needed to go into the hospital right away and visit with a different orthopedic doctor. My head started spinning at this because I was wondering why the first doctor didn't call me, why my her pediatrician had stepped in and, but we said, okay, we'll, we'll go ahead and have this appointment. When we got to the hospital and went into the room, I realized quickly by looking at a placard on the wall that the doctor we were seeing was an orthopedic oncologist. I had no idea that we were heading in to see an oncologist prior to this. So that was obviously a huge shock. Elizabeth hadn't seen the sign yet. So I felt relieved for that, but clearly the people who were in the waiting room, you could tell were having some severe problems. Some were amputees, some were you know, walking with walkers. They had definitely had issues. We had about three days of multiple tests done for Elizabeth's CAT scans, MRIs, and a lot of blood work that was drawn up. At the end of the week, she had a surgery to take some tissue from her primary growth to find out what kind of cancer she had. By this point, we knew she had a cancer. One diagnosis was difficult, but one could recover from the other potential diagnosis was a very severe one. And tragically, Elizabeth was diagnosed with osteosarcoma, which is one of the most severe pediatric cancers. They're bone tumors. And as children are growing in this adolescent age, the tumors grow very rapidly as bone tissue is reproducing rapidly as well. For a year, Elizabeth had intensive chemotherapy. She had radiation. She did not have surgeries. We had many, many long hospital stays where she would go in, for example, on a Sunday, have her chemotherapy, be so weak she couldn't lift her head off the pillow or so sick that she couldn't hold anything down in terms of food. And we would normally leave around Friday to come home. So she was really wiped out for the week. We would be home for a few weeks in between and then start this whole process over again. While Elizabeth showed some signs of improvement in terms of tumors reducing in size, they could tell that her disease was marching on. She had one experimental treatment. And during this time, she said to me, mom, if this doesn't help me, at least I hope it will help others. And I just started to see this compassionate child coming forward, really at age 13, of course she was a child, but she had so much to face. She was taking steps into really becoming a young woman. And one day on the hall of the hospital, she got in her wheelchair, went down the hall, knocked on a door and disappeared into the room. I had no idea what was going on, but a mother came to me later and said, Faith, your daughter helped explain some medical procedures that we didn't understand in a language that we could understand. And she felt made me and my daughter feel so much more comfortable about the procedures that we have ahead of us. 
And Elizabeth continued to do this when she went to the hospital. And she blossomed into a very compassionate person. Again, she had a smile that could light up a room. And she made it a goal to help other kids on the floor feel more comfortable with being in the setting that they were in. Elizabeth's disease progressed and in June of 2001, we tragically knew that Elizabeth would not be able to overcome this illness. And it was obviously an extremely difficult understanding for Elizabeth and I to come to grips with because she's old enough to understand what lay in her future. She died at home in August 25th of 2001 in my arms very peacefully. Elizabeth taught us a lot about compassion. She taught us a lot about finding the best in a day, even when a day might have been not a good day, she would find good moments. That's some of the things that I remember the most. One time I remember it was a Friday evening, we were in the hospital, and normally she'd be discharged on a Friday and not have to be there for the weekend. But on this Friday, her counts were abysmal and she wouldn't, couldn't be discharged and she just started sobbing because she so much wanted to go back and have a normal life again. And I decided quickly that we had to do something to rescue this evening. And this time, five days after her chemo, her appetite was returning. I went to her favorite Italian restaurant down the street, brought her back some tortellini. She picked out a video with a child life specialist and we sat propped up on her bed and we watched a wonderful video together and we were laughing and singing and she was eating her food. And it was small activities, but I still remember that night as being a really, really happy one because we were able to peel apart being in a hospital setting and we were just able to be together, just the two of us and having a good time. Other times I remember the ride home was always challenging for her because she often was so exhausted after being in the hospital for a week. And we got home and I got her up the stairs slowly and she crawled into bed and she would have a nap. And I would often like to go downstairs and cook some scones. I love, I love making and baking scones. When they were done, I would bring them up to her. She would have woken from her nap and we would hang out and we would watch the TV show Friends together and just laugh at their ridiculousness that they <laughs> produced on their TV programs. And there were just times that Elizabeth and I, other times, could just be together quietly talking, remembering her past, talking about her current day friends and who was coming for a visit. So these were really golden moments and they did happen. They didn't last long, but I did find sort of the last few months of her life that we could have special, as I say, golden moments during very, very difficult times. Was there any part of her that was consciously trying to make for good moments? I mean, you talked about 
very intentionally getting tortellini and doing that on her bed, which was something you made happen. What about the organic evolution of a moment? We definitely had those moments too. They were usually when she and I were alone in her room or in her hospital room. She had a way of remembering something from the past, remembering a happy occasion. And it would just bring us back. We were both, I think, very strong in being able to use our imagination and wanting to go back in a time that was in a happier place, a happier time. So yes, we did also have those times that just presented themselves. And it wasn't something that we were planning to do, but it would help us enormously in the afternoon. She also loved looking at fashion magazines. I remember one time she had stopped her chemotherapy. Her hair was about an inch long. And she said to me, Mommy, I'd like to be a model. And I said, you really could be. And she said, but I look like a boy now. And I said, no, no, you don't. With your large hazel eyes and your beautiful looks, you don't look like a boy now. She was, I think, satisfied with that. When you were in those magical moments, some of them a little bit planned and sounds like a lot of them beautifully just happening organically between the two of you. Would you have a moment of awareness where you would sort of do like what I call a mental snapshot and say, this is good. I want to remember this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially when I knew that Elizabeth wasn't going to be able to recover from her illness. I, I did many mental snapshots. The other thing that I did a lot was I wrote in a journal almost every night. I wrote down everything, what was, what was harsh, and I wrote down what was good because I wanted to have memories like the ones that I'm speaking of now. I didn't know how well my memory would recover because with shock, you can lose a fair amount of your memory. But between the journals and my recovering memory, I do remember these very wonderful times together too. I'm so glad. And you and I have talked about the importance of journaling. I wish I had journaled because sadly I did not. And I do feel the limitations of my memory now. Did you and Elizabeth, you know, she was a young, a young adult, a teenager, as you said, really coming into her own. She was not cognitively impacted really from her cancer. So you could have conversations with her about what was happening to her. Did those conversations happen? How much did she want to talk about it? And to what extent did you go there? She did want to talk about it. She was very, very honest about what was happening to her. We discussed, for instance, sometimes the progression of her illness, or she would show me where really tragically a new lump would be growing, let's say on the side of her neck or something new that was happening to her. But believe it or not, she spoke more with the doctors and the nurses. There was part of her that wanted to protect me from the reality. And I knew the reality. I had spoken separately with the doctors and nurses, but she wanted to protect me. She didn't want me to know everything. So she did have definitely times that she talked to a counselor or she talked to the doctors and nurses without me being present. We hear that a lot, that children beautifully want to protect their parents. 
Who were the providers who provided the most support to her, not including her oncologist? You had mentioned child life and the therapist. How much was she working with child life and with a therapist? I don't know if she was having conversations about God or anything, but if some of those big heady questions like why me, do you know whether they were happening and if so, with whom? She did talk to a social worker quite a lot. I would say that the social worker was just quite extraordinary and would meet with Elizabeth regularly. She met with the psychiatrist, but a little bit more infrequently. And I think that's because Elizabeth and the social worker had such a good rapport. She didn't speak to ministers. And sadly, she said she wasn't going to believe in God anymore. She couldn't understand why this was happening to her, to others around her. And so she didn't talk to ministers. She did want ministers to be present at her funeral, however, it was in her mind, but she did not want to talk about God with ministers. What level of involvement did she have in planning her service and how she wanted to be remembered? She was not involved in the planning of her service, except for the fact that she wanted these two ministers there who were especially kind to her throughout her ordeal. And we had an enormous outturning of the town that we lived in and a really extraordinary choir that came and sang. I think Elizabeth would have been, I think she would have been happy with, with how it went that day. Well, I hope, Faith, that these questions aren't too painful for you. No, it's okay. Okay. It's okay. Did she ever, did she ever come out and say that she knew she was dying? What she would say to me wouldn't be directly, I'm going to die, mommy. It would be what she would say to me in these very quiet times when I knew that she was really struggling after recovering from a chemotherapy. She said to me one time, I was separated at the time. She said, mom, I want you to remarry one day. I want you to be happy. She also told me one time that she wanted me to go back to schools and work with children and read with them like I did with, when she was in first grade, which was something that made me extremely happy. I do love being with young children. And she would say to my friends, who will take care of my mommy? She was really, really concerned for me. I didn't know that till after, but these were the parents of her friends would tell them that I would be well and I would be, I would have company, I would have companionship. I had my parents and I had my sisters and my friends and that I would be okay. So she definitely acknowledged what was going on without directly saying something like, I know that I'm dying. Wow. So beautiful. What about her friends? How much was she able to be with her friends, see her friends? That was an interesting transition for us. In the very beginning, her friends really gathered around and parents of her friends were very present and were extraordinarily supportive, would sometimes drive us to the hospital. There was a spell where I wasn't driving because I was in a state of shock and they were, no one was recommending that I drive. So 
parents or friends were wonderful about taking us to the hospital or picking us up or bringing over meals. But there was a time at which, of course, her friends went back to their lives. They went back to having their overnights and they went back to playing soccer on Saturday mornings and going to school. Elizabeth was not strong enough to go to school. And that was really, really hard. I remember one day we were just, I had brought breakfast up on a tray and in her room and we were doing pretty well. We were feeling like it was a pretty good morning. And then the school bus drove by and it didn't stop in front of the house. And she just looked at me with tears welling up in her eyes. That was just one of those quick checks of a hard reality. She had one friend in particular who seemed to be able to handle Elizabeth's condition and the fact that Elizabeth's life was changing. That friend stayed with her through thick and thin. And that friend was actually on a vacation in Nova Scotia the summer that Elizabeth was so very ill. And she came down on many, many Mondays with her dad and would come and spend the night with Elizabeth. So she really went extraordinarily above and beyond. And Elizabeth's cousin was also, female cousin was also really, really supportive and loving as was Elizabeth's sister. And what about her relationship with her sister? Is Olivia older or younger? Older. Describe how it was for you having Elizabeth and Olivia all the time in the hospital with Elizabeth. And then there's also Olivia who has needs and needs her mom. Like, how did you do all of that? I did it the best that I could, but it was extremely difficult. Olivia and Elizabeth were best friends and they were only 18 months apart in age. So this really felt like a terrible wrenching between the two of them being apart because they're only a year apart academically, they'd be on the school bus together. They were together in the playgrounds. They were together all the time. So it was a terrible wrench. Olivia did her best in high school. She was a freshman when her sister was so very ill, but it was a hard, hard time for her transitioning to a new school, a much bigger school and also not having Elizabeth home, not having me home a lot, which was very, very challenging. So I actually went with my daughters and went and lived with my sister and her family. So we had a big support network there and my sister was very helpful with Olivia, taking her to school, often picking her up, bringing her home. And when it was possible, she came into the hospital to be with her little sister but it was just so wrenching for her. And after Elizabeth died, it was, we both grieved in different ways. And often Olivia would keep her grief inside herself. And I had a hard time connecting with her and she had a hard time connecting with me. And she went and spent more and more time with friends and I, at the time, had a job where I was away for about 11 hours a day. It, it just was a, a rugged time in our relationship. But she missed her little sister terribly. You know, it's life-changing. It was life-changing for her. She still misses her. 
a tremendous amount, but her life is fuller and happier now. And I think we always will find that there'll be part of us, there'll be a hole in us forever. But now we can remember many of the silly antics and the happy things that Elizabeth did, not just having our immediate memory of the times that she was in the hospital or so very ill. The months and years after Elizabeth has died and your relationship with Olivia and realizing that you have your grief and she has hers and there's this unspoken ball of huge sadness present always. Did you get any professional help to help you know how to talk to Olivia, what was natural, how much space to give her, how much to engage, how much to leave her alone? How do you figure that out? The thing is, you can't even rely on your intuition because you've never, you've never experienced something like this before. So I did have a lot of professional help and that, that definitely could guide me and many different ideas were generated and I would just need to try the different ideas. And sometimes Olivia would receive them well and sometimes she wouldn't receive them well. So it was a step-by-step, -step, sometimes an inch-by-inch -inch process of trying to both acknowledge our sadnesses I definitely didn't want to burden her with mine. So that was tricky because if I opened up too much, then I felt that I would potentially be giving her too much to worry about. So it really was an inch by inch process that we got to a better place. I was actually communicating with a mother who's struggling with precisely this. She has two daughters and they were best friends and the older daughter recently died and the younger daughter is struggling so much and the mother isn't sure how to reach her. The daughter is not doing well in school and only wants to see one or two friends and doesn't really want to talk to her parents, which sounds very natural but also extremely difficult and as you said sort of impossible to navigate because it's so unnatural it's a natural response to a very unnatural situation i'm putting you in the spot here but what advice would you say to a mom like that if your future self could talk to your past self around the parenting piece the first few years or maybe even many years after elizabeth's death what what would you say I would say always try to keep the door open, even when a hurting child doesn't want to talk to you too much. If you always keep the door open, then you'll be surprised sometimes when they do want to talk to you. It may sound simple, but I always set the table for two. Olivia often would want to go off to see a friend. She didn't want to be home a lot. But I know that when she came home after school and always saw the table set for two, she knew that I was always there and I was always wanting her to come back home. The time that we talked the best was when we were driving in a car. And I don't know if that's because we didn't make eye contact or it was just sort of a small space or I told her that 
in the car because I wanted everyone to be paying attention that I didn't want a cell phone to ring or so we had to turn our cell phones off. And so it was just time with she and I. That was our best talking time. I would just say no matter how much you're hurting, know that she's hurting just as much, if not more, and have to be extremely patient and never give up hope that you'll be able to communicate one day. The tough reality is it may take years and years. And if your daughter can make some friends with people who've had difficult experiences, I know that helped Olivia a lot. She ended up in time making good friends with someone whose father had died suddenly, someone who had lost a mother as well. And so the average teenager doesn't know loss the way that they know loss, but you can hope in time that they make some friends who can appreciate what they're going through, even if their experience was a little bit different, if they've experienced loss. I do know at her high school, there was a support group for people who had lost a family member. Olivia didn't go to that support group, but I knew of it and I thought that would be very good for others going through similar trials. It's very tough when it happens with a teenager because they're they're pulling away from you at that time anyway, and they want to. They want to be with their friends. They want to try to begin to be independent, but they're ultimately needing so much loving from home. How do you recognize the anniversaries now, the big important dates for Elizabeth? Do you recognize her birthday? Do you recognize the day she died, the anniversary of the day she died? And if so, how do you typically do that? On the first anniversary of Elizabeth's death, I had no idea what to do. And I was beginning to feel like the day, even weeks ahead of time, was just going to totally overwhelm me. And then my therapist actually suggested that I make a plan for that day. And I was talking with a girlfriend. Um, I had recently moved into a house and my gardens were quite overgrown. And we took a section of the garden. We had two strong men over to help us. And we actually dug up this very overgrown garden. And my friend came up with literally a van full of plants. We talked ahead of time about that. And there was something so rewarding and so comforting about digging in the soil and then planting all these new plants. And so I still call that Elizabeth's garden. Almost every year I've planned, Elizabeth was born on the 1st of July, so I have two summer anniversaries. I always plan something to do on that day. It might be going to the beach for the day. It might be being with one of my special girlfriends for the day. It might be if I'm lucky enough to get a ride, go out on somebody's boat for the day. I find it very healing to be by the sea. I also sometimes go on silent retreats and I'll try to time it around Elizabeth's anniversary. So I try to peel away the world and just do something quiet and contemplative and with nature. Do you ever look at yourself and say, I can't believe I'm a person whose beautiful child died? 
the inverse of that question is how much of your identity is that you are the mother of a girl who died? I think quite a lot of my identity is with the mother of a girl who died. I don't share that identity with the outside world, but it's so integral to who I am now. And now, fortunately, with time and with counseling and with love around me, all the super sharp edges have softened around this. While I do have phases where I'll be very sad about Elizabeth's death, I more often can be happy that she was my child and that she was with me too short a time, but she was with me for just 14 years and she changed me. A death of a child changes one enormously and she's made me more compassionate. She's made me more aware of others. If I go into a store, well, maybe not right at the moment, but I remember there are times I've gone in and I've seen a handicapped child with a mother and I, you know, immediately before thinking about it, I offer to help that mother with whatever reason, because I just know that this mother's struggling and you just sometimes want her to know or him to know that there's another person out there who can connect and who can understand. But I think overall, Elizabeth's life and the way she lived her life has made me a more compassionate human being. That's beautiful. I'm sure that's true. I mean, I feel that in myself. I'm sure. Whether it's our living children or our children who are no longer here, our children get braided into us, right? Just like mm -hmm. we get braided into our children. So I wonder sometimes, I'm thinking aloud just now in conversation with you, that each of our children changes us, right? We are changed by each of our children, not just our children who die. But we don't think about that with our living children because we're just going along parenting our living children and that's just what you do. So you don't get too deep about it because it's normal. It's only when things are not normal that we get all reflective and deep. Well, I like the imagery of our children are braided inside us. And I think that's very, very true. And both my children are, and both my children will forever be. And I think I looked at parenting differently after Elizabeth died because I was awakened sharply to how life can change overnight in time, it awakened a feeling for the preciousness of life. So I do think I've parented Olivia differently because of my experience. Now, sometimes I can feel quite anxious, wondering if Olivia goes out when she was younger, you know, what time would she come home and would everything be okay? Your imagination can go a little bit wild. It can go wild with teenagers anyway, but my probably went a little too wild some days. But I think over time, life and relationships just become more precious, as I said earlier, because you're very aware that life can change in a moment and you need to hold on to what you have with great care. Thank you for listening. 
For more stories and conversations, as well as videos, downloadable guides, and decision-making resources in English and Spanish, visit CourageousParentsNetwork.org. CPN is available 24-7 for parents and providers as they strive to provide the best care for the child and the entire family.